0: It's the Code St. Luke podcast, where you'll hear interesting topics and people brought together through the Code St. Luke Public Library. Hello, uh, this is Stephen Tomlinson of the Code St. Luke Public Library. And today I'll be continuing with part two of my history of the Oscars. Now, if you'd like to hear part one in this series, you can find it on the city's SoundCloud page, the city of Code St. Luke's. SoundCloud page, episode number 259, 259. But before continuing with that history, I think it might be interesting to review or at least offer a few remarks on the most recent Oscars ceremony, uh, that is the 93rd iteration of the Academy Awards, of course, which took place just about 10 days ago from this recording. Now, the first thing to note is that the television audience dropped to a record low of less than 10 million viewers. Now, certainly that's a far cry from what it uh, used to be in decades past, but uh, it's also a far cry from what it was only last year, representing a whopping nearly 60% decline from last year's figure that showed about uh, 24 million people had tuned in to that telecast. Now, there are many reasons for the decline in the popularity of the Academy Awards, Uh, and this uh, this has been a decline that's been ongoing for many years now. But I think the slide in viewership reflects a trend among live awards shows generally. I mean, people just don't watch much live television anymore. Everything is um, time-shared, if that's the right phrase. In other words, we can really pick when it is we want to watch something, right? That's the, um, the great, uh, the great uh, wonder and availability of uh, streaming, as well as recording on our personal video recorders, at least for those of us who still have cable television. Now, um, I say that uh, live award shows in general are in decline, and certainly TV audiences for September's Emmys and the Grammy Awards uh, only last March, they also drew their lowest audiences ever. So it's not just the Academy Awards. And the ratings for the Golden Globes in February, they also fell just about 60% from a year earlier. Now, of course, the um, the Oscars and Hollywood in general has known this and has been attempting any number of uh, ways in order to uh, address these declining uh, viewership numbers. Um, And this year, certainly hoping to draw more viewers while adhering to pandemic safety measures, um, this year's producers, led by the film director uh, Stephen Soderbergh, they tried a few new things. For example, the awards were broadcast uh, for the first time at a historic train station in downtown Los Angeles, of all things. And this was thought to offer the possibility of a more intimate setting with only nominees and their guests in attendance. Of course, many of us who are um, of a a slightly older vintage will remember um, awards ceremonies held in the dorothy chandler pavilion with a uh, a large very large number of the people in attendance but uh, evidently that didn't work Um, as i said the audience was uh, really quite tiny for this year's ceremony and of course this has been something that's been going on for many years now though never so precipitously as this year have the, uh, the audiences uh, dropped so far. Certainly younger people seem less interested these days uh, than do, I would say, older audiences, you know, audiences of my own generation in the late 50s and, and older. I mean, we all grew up watching um, the Academy Awards. It was a kind of a, a shared event, Right, It was event television, and certainly we would have uh, grown up watching them with our families and and our friends and discussing them the next day at school or at work, and that's, they just don't seem to have that relevance anymore. I mean, the, the possibility for entertainment these days, especially for younger people, is, is, you know, we're often into computer games, for example, is, is just... Is, just too fragmented. There's just too many options. And the immediacy of attaining those options um, that just weren't available in the past, uh, that, that's just too great. I mean, just think of the immediacy of streaming, just about anything, streaming just about anything you want to watch or listen to or play or do at any time, for example. I mean, it's never been greater than it is today. So there's just way too much competition for the Oscars competition that just wasn't present in years past. But I think there are, are other reasons um, that are specific to the Academy Awards for, you know, that bring about less of an interest in them. Than, uh, and that has a lot to do, I think, with the culture wars that are ongoing in the United States in general, where half the country may feel alienated by the activist, often self-righteous politics espoused uh, by what they see as the Hollywood liberal elite and the increasingly niche-oriented films that uh, are being awarded the Golden Statuettes in recent years. And of course, the allure, aura, and glamour of the movie star just isn't as pronounced as it was in years past. I mean, the studio system that backed up that glamour isn't uh, present any longer either. And of course there has never been such a wide divide as there is today between what Hollywood considers award-worthy and the big popular movies that once attracted crowds to the theatres before the pandemic. Nevertheless, this year's uh, show featured a historic Best Director win for Chloe Zhao, who became the second woman, and only the second woman, and the first woman of color, if that's the right phrase, to take home the prize for Best Director. Her film Nomadland won The Best Picture Award and its lead actress, Frances McDormand, won the Best Actress Prize as a, if you haven't seen the movie yet, and a lot of people haven't seen the movie, as a, uh, she plays a widow in a depressed, uh, or from a depressed Nevada mining town who has turned her van into a mobile home and set out on the road, taking seasonal jobs and making friends along the way. Um, It's something I talked about last week, so you might want to uh, check out my recording on uh, lockdown viewing, which you can also find on the city's SoundCloud page. Nomadland, as I discussed, is based on a 2017 nonfiction book by Jessica Bruder, and it features um, real-life so-called nomads in supporting roles as fictionalized versions of themselves. The other Best Picture nominees um, this year were the uh, Vietnam-era courtroom drama The Trial of the Chicago 7, the black-and-white 1930s Hollywood drama Mank, the Me Too revenge tale Promising Young Woman, the South Korean immigrant story Minari, the Black Panther biopic Judas and the Black Messiah. The Dementia Tale, The Father, which also won the Best Actor Prize for Anthony Hopkins. And finally, among the Best Picture nominees, Sound of Metal, which is um, about a deaf drummer in which you can find and watch on the cities or the libraries, the Code St. Luke Public Libraries. Coupla Digital Service. I guess all in all it was a snazzily produced show something really made with um, the telev- the television viewer in mind even if there were not that many or at least as many as hoped for. Though the ending the ending uh, was uh, a little weird that's because <laughs> That's becoming something of a contemporary tradition, Uh, the weird conclusion to an Oscars uh, telecast. Of course, everyone will recall the year uh, in which um, um, they got it wrong and um, the wrong film was awarded the best picture and uh, a hasty conclusion had to be rearranged uh, when uh, the year Moonlight, the movie Moonlight won. This year, uh, instead of presenting the Best Picture Award last, um, the award was presented um, third from the conclusion with the Best Actor Award presented last this year. I guess the thinking was, uh, perhaps rather cynically, that the late uh, Chadwick uh, Boseman was sure to win the Best Actor Award this year, and that, um, you know, he he would be awarded a posthumous Oscar with his wife in attendance to accept it and, you know, presumably to to give a very emotional acceptance speech. Um, You know, at at least that was the anticipation, uh, you know, that it would make for this highly emotional moment and therefore a quite appropriate climax to the three-hour-plus telecast. Except, it didn't work out that way. And Bosman did not win, but instead an absent 83-year-old Anthony Hopkins won, and I th- believe he is the oldest ever Best Actor Oscar winner now. And this is um, almost 30 years after his first Oscar win for Best Actor um, in 1992 for Silence of the Lambs. But in any case, uh, in that rather strange moment, um, the most recent Oscars telecast presenter, Joaquin Phoenix, was really left with little to do but read Anthony Hopkins' name and accept the award on his behalf. And it made for a very awkward conclusion to the telecast. But oh well, these are quite awkward times, so maybe it... uh, was strangely, if somewhat poetically, appropriate, at least in that regard. Okay, let's now return um, to part two of my history of the Oscars. I left off last time in 1949 when the movies were quite central to the culture and theatrical attendance, for example, was still very close to the highest it had ever been just after World War II, when TV was still not a threat, still not yet a threat to movie dominance. That year, Hamlet, the movie Hamlet, um, starring Laurence Olivier in the title role, you might say, uh, became the first non-Hollywood film to win the Best Picture Award. It was a... Adaptation financed and filmed in England. Um, Olivier himself uh, won the Best Actor Award, though um, it was left to Douglas Fairbanks Jr. to accept the award on his behalf, much as Joaquin Phoenix did this year on the behalf of Anthony Hopkins. Olivier was uh, in England, much as Hopkins was himself in Wales and would only film his acceptance speech for Instagram in the hours after being awarded the Little Statuette. For the first time ever in 1949, the Academy gave awards for costume design and the nominees were separately classified between color movies and black and white movies. So in this case, Joan of Arc won the award for um, costume design in a color film and Hamlet won one of its many awards uh, for costume design but in a black and white film that same year 1949 the actor Walter Houston uh, won the best supporting actor award for his appearance in The Treasure of the Sierra Madre which was directed by his son John Houston, who won the Best Director award for that film, they would not be the last in the Houston clan to win Oscars. Um, Angelica Houston, um, who is uh, John Houston's daughter, she would win the Best Supporting Actress award in 1985 for her performance in Pritzi's Honor. You know, there is another three-generation Oscar-winning family in addition to the Eustons, and that would be the Coppolas. Carmine Coppola won with Nina Rota, the best original dramatic score in 1975 for The Godfather Part Two. His son Francis Ford Coppola's first win was for original screenplay in 1971 for the movie Patton, and of course he would also go on to win other awards for the Godfather films. And granddaughter Sophia Coppola, she won for Best Original Screenplay in 2005 for her movie Lost in Translation. In 1951, and somewhat controversially, Judy Holliday won the Best Actress Award instead of either Betty Davis in All About Eve or... Glorious Watson for Sunset Boulevard. Anne Baxter's equally worthy turn in All About Eve was also in contention that year, which marked the first time in Oscar history that multiple people from the same film were nominated for Best Actress. I guess Holiday probably benefited from a split in the vote, much like in a presidential nominee primary contest. You know, that year, All About Eve also secured the most number of nominations of any film in Oscar history, with a total of 14 nominations, which is a distinction it still holds today, along with two other movies, Titanic in 1998 and La La Land in 2017. Both of those films also received 14 nominations in total. In 1952... A Streetcar Named Desire became the first film to win three Oscars for acting. Vivian Leigh, Carl Malden, and Kim Hunter being the winners. But Marlon Brando in the same film, quite famously as Stanley Kowalski, you'll remember, Stella! He did not win, having lost out to Humphrey Bogart in The African Queen. Arguably one of the greater injustices in Oscar history. There have been many, of course. Now, no film to date has ever won all four of the acting categories, and only one other film besides A Streetcar Named Desire has won three acting categories, and that film was Network in 1977. An American in Paris won the Best Picture Award that year in 1952, and Danny Kaye was the host, the only time he was the host of the Oscars. 1953 was the Oscars' first television broadcast in both the U.S. and Canada. 34 million people watched it, the most watched show in the brief history of television up to that point, and roughly three and a half times greater than the audience that watched the most recent edition of the Oscars, the 93rd edition, the Oscars that took place 10 days ago, as of this recording. But in 1952, the Oscars weren't entirely new to people, of course. They had been listening to Oscar ceremonies in very large numbers, but on the radio, of course. But even then, in 1953, the host, Bob Hope again, opened with a monologue, joking that television is where movies go to die. And in doing that, in saying that, he was really giving a kind of fearful voice that Hollywood saw the new medium of television as a threat. You know, Bob Hope, by the way, would host the Oscars a record 19 times in total. I mean, that's a lot. That's that's such a large number. In fact, in distant second place among Oscar hosts is Billy Crystal who hosted the show only nine times. I say only nine times, but of course, in recent years, the show has gone without a host, which is supposedly mm, some kind of improvement, or at least it's thought of as such in some quarters. Now, that year in 1953, producer-director Cecil B. DeMille won the Best Picture Oscar for The Greatest Show on Earth. Now... This circus story was a major box office hit, but it's not that great a movie, and there's nothing much of substance beneath all of the spectacle. All in all, the kind of movie that one senses that contemporary Hollywood would never see fit to honor. But even in 1953... Its win was partly ascribed by many onlookers, many Hollywood insiders to voters wanting to reward producer Cecil B. DeMille for his legendary career, as well as because of the fear-mongering political atmosphere of the time. (laughs) I mean, something's never changed, right? Just the direction of the politics, I guess. Now, by way of example, both fellow Best Picture nominees, High Noon and Ivanhoe, this is 1953, remember, were written by blacklisted writers. Writers blacklisted because of their either current or former left-wing politics. Now, Stanley Kramer, the producer of High Noon, he certainly believed that politics, the politics of the time, had determined the winner of the best picture that year. He had this to say in his autobiography, It's a Mad, Mad, Mad World, A Life in Hollywood. And I quote him here, I still believe High Noon was the best best picture of 1952, but the political climate of the nation and the right-wing campaigns after High Noon had enough effect to relegate it to also-ran status. In 1955, Grace Kelly, who was then at the height of her popularity, won the Best Actress Award for the movie The Country Girl. Now, what Kelly did to win the award is one of the surefire ways for a movie star to win any Oscar acting category. What she did was she de-glamorized herself, just as actors and actresses have done for decades. As the dowdy wife of an alcoholic, her portrayal was 180 degrees away from that pristine image, public image of, you know, great beauty that one associates with uh, Grace Kelly to this day. But she probably also got brownie points for her other films that year, Rear Window and Dial In for Murder, both for director Alfred Hitchcock, who scandalously never won an Oscar. Did you know that? Alfred Hitchcock, arguably the greatest director in the history of movies, never won an Oscar for Best Director. I believe he was given a Lifetime Achievement Award at at some point um, before his death, but he never won an Oscar for one of his films, which I think, really, when you think about it, underscores just how is the entire thing of awarding, uh, you, know, um, you know, giving awards for performances and movies is, you know, on the level of lasting aesthetic value. I mean, Hitchcock was nominated on several occasions, five times, in fact, including that year in 1955, for Rear Window. But as I said, he never won. But back to Grace Kelly for a moment. Judy Garland was widely expected to win for her turn in A Star is Born, the remake. One of, what is it now, four remakes of A Star is Born? Uh, but in 1955, um, Judy Garland was so widely expected to win that a camera crew was set up in her hospital room where she had just given birth to her son so that she could give her speech. I mean, such was the anticipation just as this year many anticipated um, Chadwick Bozeman receiving a posthumous Oscar for his performance in Ma Rainey but that year in 1955 when Judy Garland lost to Jean uh, to Jean Kelly to, Jean, <laughs> to Grace Kelly the crew immediately packed up and left what did Groucho Marx quip afterwards? In a telegram that he sent to Judy Garland sometime after the event, he said, this is the biggest robbery since Brinks. You know, something we might consider is that the Oscars are mostly a marketing tool for the Hollywood film industry as a whole. I think that is primarily how they can be seen over the course of nearly 100 years now. You know, that they don't necessarily represent any absolute standard of excellence or quality in filmmaking or performance, and that they really never have. I mean, who gets to decide what is a great film or performance anyway? I mean, who who, who can say it? it's such a subjective thing, right? I mean, you can't quantitatively measure those things. It's not a science, you know. Or it's not like a sporting event, you know, where one team scores more than the other team, right? That's quantitative. There's a winner, you understand. There's an objective measure by which to by which to arrive at a winner. Whereas with the Oscars, you know, it's 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 really all about the particular taste of a finite group of people at any specific point in time. And as such, we can see that there have been many examples of when the Oscars got it wrong throughout the years, throughout several decades, when it comes to the particular case of Velvet Hitchcock as just one glaring example. In 1956, the Best Foreign Language Film category was introduced, with Federico Fellini's La Strada being the first winner in this category. You know, the great uh, Italian director Fellini, this would not be the last time one of his films would win the award. In fact, he would also win that category, the Best Foreign Language Film category, on at least three subsequent occasions, if my memory serves. Um, In fact, he would win it again the next year for Knights of Kiberia in 1957, and he won it again in 1963, for eight and a half, and then 10 years after that for Amarcord in 1973. So uh, all in all, Fellini has done quite well um, by the Academy Awards. Up until that uh, very first victory in 1956, the category of best foreign language film did not, uh, as I said, uh, exist Uh, until then. Foreign Language Movies had been honored with a Special Achievement Award. And, uh, of course, in more recent years, the award itself has been renamed Best International Feature. Now, I'm not sure why they've renamed it Best International Feature. It really doesn't make much sense to me because the qualification for becoming a nominee in that category, whether it was Best Foreign Language Film or Best International Feature, remains the same it is it, you know it, 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 in order to be eligible as a nominee in, in that category whatever the name the film has to be in a language primarily other than you know a, a language that is primarily other than english so if, for example a movie shot in french in montreal as with denny arcand films of the past you know Um, That would be eligible for the Best International Feature category, whereas a movie shot in English in Toronto would not be eligible for Best International Feature. So, I don't know why they changed the name. (laughs) It doesn't make any sense to me. In 1960, Ben-Hur was the big winner, and in doing so, it set an Oscar record by winning the most number of Oscars ever, 11 in total, which it, it still holds, a record it still holds today, though tied with two other films, Titanic in 1998 and Return of the King, the third in the Lord of the Rings trilogy in 2004. Also in 1960, Billy Wilder, the great Billy Wilder, became the first person to win Oscars for directing, writing, in Best Picture for his eternally great romantic comedy drama The Apartment. Now in retrospect, Shirley MacLaine probably should have won the Best Actress Award that year for her role in The Apartment, you know as the I'm sure you'll recall as the jilted mistress of CAD Fred McMurray and the companion of fellow sad sack love interest Jack Lemmon, but she lost to Elizabeth Taylor in Butterfield 8, a role that Taylor openly loathed but nevertheless Taylor had the public sympathy that year having suffered a near fatal bout of pneumonia while shooting Cleopatra just weeks before the Oscars and um frail Taylor showed up at the Oscar ceremonies with a visible tracheotomy scar on her neck to accept the best actress award while Half her competition, as I understand it, didn't even bother to show up because they were sure she was going to win. And she did. And what did uh, Shirley MacLaine, what did she famously quip uh, afterwards, if <laughs> somewhat somewhat wickedly? She was a, Shirley MacLaine is quite the wicked wit. She said, I lost to a tracheotomy. <laughs> now, six years later, Elizabeth Taylor would win a second best actress Oscar for her. Indisputably tremendous, if rather histrionic, performance in *Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf*? But perhaps we'll we'll save that for another time um, and call a wrap on things here with part two of my soon-to-be epic series on the history of the Oscars and say that I hope you'll look forward to future installments in this series when I'll provide more information, more insight and opinions about this venerable institution of the Academy Awards, including a continuing discussion on present-day controversies and challenges and where the Oscars might go from here. So please join me then, and remember, if you have any comments or questions, you can Best reach me at tomlinson at or by means of the library's Facebook page or even by calling the library at 514-485-6900 and leaving a message. All right, all the best and bye-bye for now. for listening to the Code St. Luke podcast today. We launched the podcast and telephone broadcasting service in March 2020. The idea was to get content from Parks and Recreation and the library into your homes using Zoom, telephone, and podcasts. If you enjoy the podcast, please give it a rating and review at Apple Podcasts, and share it with your friends. For more information about programs at the library, visit csllibrary.org. For information about the City of Code St. Luke, visit codesaintluke.org. Have a great day!